Hi everyone, Ashley Brown here and welcome to episode 4 of the Lap of Caulfield Park presented by Plus61J Media. This episode we are talking to the Chief Executive of Red Nose Australia, Karen Ludsky, and she'll be with me shortly. Firstly, thanks to everyone who downloaded and listened and reviewed and rated the first three podcasts with Andrew Bassett, Philip Kingston and Melissa Singer. The feedback has been great and looking forward to having more podcasts come your way in the near future. Now to Karen. She is someone I've known for a very long time. She was originally uh, Kez's Kitchen and then after a uh, terrible family tragedy, I guess is probably the best way to put it, uh, her life moved in a totally different direction and now she's been with the Red Nose Foundation, formerly SIDS, probably uh, the last couple of years, and she's just completed the uh, 2020 appeal that she'll tell us all about. So um, it's, a, it's a riveting discussion, went in a few different directions, this conversation, uh, that I didn't sort of expect it to go. It was great that she joined us. Now, just bear with us with the audio. The audio quality is a little bit patchy early on. We had a couple of... Uh, difficulties but we got there eventually but stick with us it's a it's a really worthwhile conversation i think it's a bit of a it opened my eyes about a few things and hopefully it will yours as well so sit back and draw me as i take a lap of caulfield park with karen ludsky Karen Larsky, welcome to A Lap of Caulfield Park. Thank you for having me. Really good to talk to you. We go way back. You're one of my sister's closest friends. So I've known you for a long time. And uh, I think what, you, what you've been doing lately with, with Red Nose is fantastic. We'll get into that first. So the Red Nose Day, uh, the 2020 appeal is in the, in, the, in the books now. How did it all go this year? Oh, Ash, it was a remarkable campaign. You know, COVID has thrown a spanner in the works for so many um, businesses, organisations across the country. And we were really concerned around what a Red Nose Day campaign would look like in a COVID environment. Historically, a lot of what we've done has been with the tin shakers and people running events where you know, we can have a lot of people together and we haven't been able to do that So and selling merchandise. So we decided uh, probably two, three months ago that we would move the campaign to a digital platform and completely new. We're also running a very lean organisation. So it's not like we had lots of people that we could say, stop doing what you're doing now and get on top of this digital space. But the team rallied together unbelievably well and the first couple of things that we did was organise to have two Red Nose Day filters available on Instagram and, and Facebook that were really silly. We had a, the idea to really push the, the silly for a serious cause angle this year um, and we had something like 1.2 million people downloaded, downloaded these filters. Who would have thought it? Um, you know, and shared those with us and made a donation at the same time. We also sold digital red noses, which was, was something that we'd never done before. We created, we never thought this day would come where we would actually have a red nose face mask. And we started with such a small order thinking, you know, it's a face mask and we couldn't keep up with the demand. We just kept ordering more and more and more of them. And then the final thing we did was the giving day last Friday the 14th. And our target was to raise half a million dollars. I think we're going to go very close to probably 100,000 more than that. So we are blown away by the 
generosity of Australians who are doing it so tough yet could still dig deep to help us. So a really humbling experience, actually. That's a remarkable, uh, remarkable outcome because, yeah, we, we are hearing all the stories about Australians and so, yeah, the unemployment rate being around 10% as it is now, people just not working. To be able to find the, a way to support your charity and I guess a whole lot of others as well is, is, is truly incredible. It's actually heartwarming. It really, and I guess for me, it's also the messages that come with, with the donation, big or small, one of them that stayed with me, a woman who donated $10, and she said, I really hope this small amount can make a difference to saving a little life. And, you know, it's, it's every dollar makes a difference, you know, and that's where we know people are doing it tough, and yet they're so incredibly generous, which, as I said, leaves me a bit speechless. It's a very competitive market. I mean, I don't know if that's the right word for in the charity sector. I mean, a lot of causes, and they're all great causes, I guess, the red nose is reasonably iconic in its own way now. I guess that gives you a bit of a head start in terms of that when you set out at the start of the year looking for your fundraising. Well, I think it's both friend and foe. I think because the iconic red nose has been around for so long, I think there's a perception that it's a really wealthy charity and that we don't need to be worrying about fundraising. And the reality is that it's not true. We get about 18% of our revenue out of government and all the rest of it comes out of fundraising. So, you know, for us, the minute there's that dip in fundraising, it has an impact on on what we can deliver from a service perspective. I think, you know, what I I say all the time is that there are so many incredibly worthwhile charities. It's just a matter of which one speaks to to you as a person. And, you know, we are very fortunate that we have a a very loyal following. And with charities, it's trying to keep the overheads low. And so as much as you raise can go to the actual cause, that's something you've been able to do. We've had, you know, stories over years of charities have found that really difficult to keep the overheads low. Is that something you've been able to achieve? Does COVID help because you, I know you're not paying rent or you, you, your expenses are lower? So our, our expenses are lower. So we, we've been very um, fortunate to have been supported well by our landlords where we, we, where we are paying rent. Um, but I think even from the, the time that I took on the role of CEO, one of the things that I was really passionate about is, is how do we make sure that we are running as lean as we possibly can? You know, if, if we were setting up this organisation from scratch, there's every chance it would be around my kitchen table and you wouldn't be paying the overheads of, of offices, et cetera, et cetera. We, we do, obviously, like every organisation, have overheads, but what COVID has done is we don't have to worry about the cleaning, we don't have to worry about the utilities, we don't have to worry about interstate and overseas travel, you know. So in some ways, you know, I'm always that there's a silver lining in everything. I guess that's the silver lining in this. So let's look at a bit of your backstory. So I think uh, you, you studied psychology at uni. I did. I studied, um, I studied psych at uni, finished that and really had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. So I started a biscuit making business that was really meant to be something to do part-time when I had kids, which was Kez, is Kez's Kitchen. It grew incredibly quickly and I would probably still be doing that today if it wasn't for the fact that in 1998, my third child died of SIDS. And at that time, I guess the only way that I could really make sense of what was going on for me was to start giving something back. And I, I very quickly started um, volunteering at what was SIDS and Kids back then as a as a person with lived experience who would go out and talk to the emergency responders and the emergency departments about what it's like for a, a SIDS family to have their presence after their, their baby has died. Uh, and then from there went on to 
being a peer supporter, from there went on to be a staff member, from there went on to be a VIC board member. And then I kind of stepped away for a bit and have been working in the grief and loss space clinically ever since. All of a sudden my psych degree came into to use. I went back and did more studying. And it was, you know, mid-2018 where it, it, I had a number of calls from people saying, did you know Red Nose is looking for a new CEO? And I think my thinking then was, if not now, then when? And I threw my hat into the ring and here we are. I'm interested in that because for a lot of people who have suffered a trauma as you did, they might want to compartmentalise it and it's stored away in the deepest recesses of their mind and only they deal with it very privately. I mean, we see it with people like Holocaust survivors as a perfect example of that. That, that. It's the trauma that they just want to move away, move on from very quickly. Your life since that time has been, this has been sort of front and centre of your life. I'm really interested into why you've gone down that path when others, and there's no right or wrong in this, of course, but why you've decided to go down this path. Well, I think it's really interesting. If we look at the way people grieve, it's very much people grieve across the spectrum. And at, at one end of the spectrum, we have what we call our intuitive grievers. And they are the, the, the kind of person who will, will um, compartmentalise and they will very much, their grief is their grief and we'll talk about our grief separate and we'll cry um, and we'll have those kind of conversations where there is a lot of emotion around it, a lot of the, the storytelling and the sharing. And then right up the other end of the, the grieving spectrum is what we call our instrumental grievers, so more of our doers, people who want to make sense of it by doing something. So it might be the people who set up charitable trusts in honour of their loved one. It might be people who go on and do fund research. It might be people like me who go on to do a CEO role at, at the organisation that supported them way back then. For me, it, it I still feel like it's compartmentalised. Um, I feel like professional me is not, you know, Ben's always there, but it's not part of my, what I do every day, but it certainly drives me every single day. So for me, I guess, it's a way of honouring that little life um, in a way that makes sense for me. Yeah, you still find a need to be the private grieve privately do you still get that space it's something you still find that you need to do it's really interesting so this red nose day i decided to to set myself a target of raising fifty thousand dollars personally from you know my network and i realized that for me to be able to do that i needed to be vulnerable and i needed to imagine that i was standing in front of this group of people telling them my why why is it important for me that you support red nose this year and so I recorded a video which talked about my why. Um, it was only a brief video, but, you know, I've, I've noticed that this campaign, I have shared significantly more of me than I think I have done historically. What that does, does leave me feeling a, a tad vulnerable, but I also look at what I achieved by doing that and not just in terms of the dollars raised, but in terms of that, that sense of connection and that sense of community. So you, you find that with, with uh, Red Nose that people, your donors have a, a personal connection to it, perhaps more than some other uh, charities you might be aware of? So without doubt, a, a significant percentage, and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, and it, it will certainly be something that we look at when we do an analysis of Red Nose Day, but a significant proportion have either experienced the loss of a baby or child or have been connected with someone who has. How important is it? As the CEO of the organisation, you can walk in the shoes. You've experienced the trauma that of the char of of the charity you're leading compared to some others. I've heard you talk about this before. Perhaps just tells why you think that's important. 
it's interesting. I don't, I don't think it's vital, but if I, if I look, you know, at the organisation and I look at, you know, what we're looking for from a culture within the organisation, so that's both within the staff, the volunteers, the board, and then we go out to the broader population. I think when an organisation like Red Nose is led by someone with that lived experience, my motive is pure, my intention is pure. The only thing that I actually genuinely care about is that this organisation is able to deliver, continue to deliver the services that it delivers across bereavement support, across education and prevention and across research so that families don't have to go through what my family went through. And that's what drives me every day. There's no ego in this for me. It's so clear for me that we have to keep doing what we're doing to be there for other families. You're listening to A Lap of Caulfield Park with our host, Ashley Brown. You talk about prevention and research. What do we know about SIDS? What what has the the research and the study over the years told us about it? Because it seems on the outside very random, but perhaps it's not. But what do we know about it? So what's really interesting, we know that, that it is a diagnosis of exclusion. So we know that these are healthy babies who go to sleep and don't wake up. We know that in the last 30 years, as a result of the, the safe sleep messaging that's come out of Red Nose, that we've seen those rates go down by 85%, which is 10,857 little bubs that wouldn't be here today without our research. We also know that if we take our foot off the pedal for even a moment, those rates will increase again. So a recent um, research paper that came out of the University of the Sunshine Coast Um, who interviewed 3,300 new parents, a third of them shared that at some point they'd slept their babies on their stomachs. And we know that that's a significant risk factor. So my fear is we stop, we slow down, we will see the rates increase again. Um, So that's why we will continue to look at research and and fund research that looks into why. So we know that the the safe sleep messaging um, is risk prevention. We still don't know why that is. So that's where the research keeps going. But the other really big area for us now is in the stillbirth space. So six babies every day in Australia are stillborn. That's 3,000 a year. So, you know, that's where we're also funding research and prevention messaging to try and get the rates of preventable stillbirth down as well. I imagine in planning, you you talked about uh, before that it's a trying to have some fun with, with the messaging. Do you find that's something you people appreciate the fact that you're trying to have a bit of fun with it? It's such a serious, such a serious issue, but you're allowed to have some fun and pe- people accept that and happy with that? Well, I think that that was kind of proven to be true by the, the success of the, the filters that people could use for Instagram and Facebook. They were fun, you know. So there is there has to be a lightness to this. Otherwise, it's it's too sad and it's too heavy. So... You know, I know for even myself when I was doing interviews on Friday, you know, I made a point on on both Channel 9 and Sky News of putting a red nose on um, and and having a bit of a a poke, have a bit of fun because together that that silliness raised a lot of money. So, you know, people are are much happier to engage in silliness that's going towards a serious cause and the seriousness on its own. And that's a Jewish trait. The Jews are over our... Over our history, even in the darkest times, Jews have been able to, to have, poke some fun and have a laugh, even at their dark times. It's the old-fashioned black humour. So even in my family, I often 
you know, I'll, I'll throw a really inappropriate one-liner and they'll go, I'm not sure you can say that about death and dying. And I'm like, yeah, you can say it about death and dying because otherwise it's just too sad and it's just too much. And, you know, that little bit of silliness isn't, it's not disrespectful in any way, shape or form. It just makes us, it makes it manageable for us to deal with it. I want to ask you about being a manager, also being a CEO of a private enterprise slash family business versus leading an organisation like uh, like Red Nose. What are the similarities? What are the differences? Uh, huge differences. I think when it, when it's a family business, you know the the buck stops with you. But there's a there's a, an openness, a transparency, almost I guess a casualness. And even in the early days of Kez's, you know, we had a board that was led by an independent chairman and we used to have family council meetings to be able to separate um, business from pleasure so that Shabbat dinner would come and it wasn't a Kez's board meeting, it was just a Shabbat dinner. So we put some really good structures um, in place early on. But, you know, at the end of the day, it it was about selling biscuits and creating a product that we were proud of. Um, And and certainly profitability was a big part of it as well. I guess coming into, you know, being CEO of a not-for-profit that is where I am answerable to a board that I have, you know, a, a team nationally under me that reports to government as well as, as reporting to fundraisers. It's a very different, in some ways, the, the responsibility or the yeah, the responsibility of, of being CEO at Red Nose weighs significantly more heavily on me than it, it did back at the early days of Kezza's. You know, I feel like if 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 I fail in any way here, this is not about me and my livelihood. This is about thousands and thousands and thousands of families that won't have the benefit of the Red Nose service. Yeah, and I guess process and governance as well are different in an organisation like Red Nose compared to how business even one as, you know, corporately well-run as Kez's was and is. Well, I think not a day goes by where we're not talking about a new policy or procedure or risk register or audit process or, you know, I have learnt so much new language, you know, in the less than two years that I've been on board. I feel like every day is, every day is a school day and I say that with joy because it actually, it's, it's amazing, I think, you know, I'm 52 and, you know, I never thought at where I'm sitting now that I would be learning what I'm learning every day. And I feel actually incredibly privileged to have the opportunity to lead the organisation. You're noticing with young people are more discerning now, we're talking partly about our community but also outside as well, young people are more discerning now about um, charity and what they do and who they give money to? I think, you know, that young people today just have a, a such stronger social conscience than we did um, back at their age. And, you know, I think they're, they're very selective on, on who they support. And I think what I see certainly in, in the young ones around me is it's not, it's not so much about the money, it's the time that they give um, to, to community, both Jewish and, and externally. And I think there is a part of it that is, you know, certainly what do I, what would be beneficial for me to be able to pad my CV for the long term? But I think even greater than that is that I think, particularly, like I'm talking about Jewish community now, I think our kids know how privileged they are. Um, and there's almost a, a, an innate desire in a lot of them to just give back. 
So I think that there's there's the community aspect of it and then there is the career aspect of it. Sometimes they mix in together and sometimes they're quite separate. Yeah, and that's what I'll, the second part of that is and as a choice of career and you know, young people coming out of um, university, they've got their degree, so competitive, you know, the, the jobs in the private sector, it's so hard to get these days. But um, increasingly, young people are finding worth young graduates are finding worth in going to work in the public sector, the NGAs, charity sector, that sort of thing? Well, I think it's really interesting. So, you know, there's no question about the fact that the pay grade in the not-for-profit sector is not the same as what it is in the private sector. But I think there's also, you know, so so many opportunities for growth and development in the not-for-profit sector. And I think, you know, if... if Young people are taking roles in a, whether it be government or, or NGO, and it means something to them. They're going to be exposed potentially to far more aspects of a business than they, than they might in one of the bigger private sector businesses. So I think from a learning perspective, and you know, and that includes governance, etc. Um, it's an excellent, you know, I, I guess um, grounding for them to start their careers. What are the challenges for, for you and for and Red Nose going forward? Well, I think for us, it's always around sustainability. It's always making sure that there's enough money coming in to, to deliver our services. And, you know, what we've certainly found in the COVID period, that the demand for our services has increased exponentially. It's been something like a 40% increase in the number of counselling sessions we've done and a 30% increase in the number of calls to our safe sleep line. So that's coming from from new parents who are feeling anxious about um, keeping their bub safe at a time where they can't go out and about and have their play groups and go visit their maternal and child health centre in the same way. So we've found an increase in demand at a time where funds are reduced. So one of the parts of the Red Nose business model is we have a social enterprise um, that uh, is called it's not it's not a pretty title but it's it's red nose clothing collection and what we effectively do in victoria and south australia is collect household goods and clothing we then sell those goods to savers stores in vic and south australia and we get paid per kilo for those goods that's lovely and great till COVID hits and stores get shut and there's not the demand so that was that we took a big hit there. South Australia's picking up again now, so that's great. Victoria, as we sit right now, is closed. So I guess, you know, what that reminds us is how important it is to have a diverse funding base, you know, that you can't ever rely on all eggs in one basket because one of those egg, one of those baskets tip over um, and, you know, you find yourself in trouble. So never been more grateful for our government funding, never been more grateful for JobKeeper, never been more grateful to an incredible community of, of generous donors. You seem incredibly fulfilled and satisfied with what you're doing now. And, and you know, again, starting from a, you know, the most unimaginable trauma, it's taking a direction where you've uh, you get a lot, of, a lot of satisfaction out of what you're doing. You know, I, I say to people around me all the time, you just never know where you're going to land. You know, never in a million years did I think this is where I was going to end up. I, I never saw myself as CEO of 
of anything, which is funny given that that the, the Kez's story. But for me, that was still a family business, and you know, it grew like our children grow. You know, it started really small, and you know, I could grow with it. You know, I, I just look and I, I think every every day is a new day. Be curious, be open, and it's just remarkable where where we find ourselves. So I do feel I do feel fulfilled. I do feel unbelievably privileged, and I have absolutely no doubt that there is no way that I would be in this in this position without that little boy sitting on my left shoulder, you know, reminding me, you know, every other day why the work is so important. All right, Carrie. And just finally, the appeal is over, but people can still, uh, as Red Nose's day is done, people can still give. Where can they, if people want to uh, donate, what can they do? Where can if they, they want to make a donation, they can go onto the Red Nose website, so rednose.org.au and make a donation, and it's never too late. All right, terrific. Well, thank you for joining us on this lap of Caulfield Park. Good luck with everything that you guys do from now and going forward. It's, a, it's an unbelievably impressive charity and I certainly urge everyone to support as well. So thanks for your time and good luck with everything. Thank you so much. That was Karen Ludsky, the Chief Executive of Red Nose and uh, a really eye-opening conversation for me and I hope it was for you as well. So you've been listening to A Lap of Caulfield Park, presented by Plus 61J Media. The show host is me, Ashley Brown, and the producer is the uber-talented Dash Lawrence. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and subscribe to Plus 61J's bi-weekly newsletter at plus61j.net.au. You can find me on Twitter at hashbrown and in the pages of the AFL record and online at sen.com.au and as well, plus61j.net. I also appear on the Golden News podcast for the mighty Hawthorne Football Club. Uh, As I said earlier, at the top of the podcast, thanks everyone for for listening, supporting the podcast. We've done three great ones so far. Next one, we're going to be talking about uh, entertainment, uh, movies, TV, live theatre with someone from our community who's really been at the epicentre, all of those. It's going to be a great chat, I'm sure. So, Join me next time around. Don't forget to rate, review the uh, podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts or reach out to me directly if you like and uh, let me know what you think. And perhaps, you know, any people you think I should be talking to uh, down the track. So once again, thank you so much for listening. Really enjoy bringing these podcasts to you. And join me next time when I take a lap around Caulfield Park.